this is the in focus podcast from the hindu hello and welcome to the in focus podcast i'm your host g sampad rafael nadal who in january became the first man ever to win 21 grand slam titles has added one more to his kitty by winning the french open his 14th at roland garros last week however not too long ago things weren't looking so great for him He missed both Wimbledon and the US Open last year due to injury and many were wondering if he was going to retire. Until this January, among the big 3 of Roger Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, it was Djokovic who was expected to reach 21 titles first. But against all expectations and against the odds, it is Nadal who has raced ahead to 22 and looks set to add even more. In this edition of In Focus, we are going to talk about how Nadal manages to do what he does. despite his chronic injury troubles and what are the prospects for the spaniard in the coming months our guest today is preeti ramamurthy who has written on tennis for the hindu and has covered the us open in 2017 and 2018 preeti thank you so much for joining us thank you thank you sampar pleasure to be here uh preeti just to start with i just wanted to uh, hear your comments on on nadal's achievement in winning his 14th french open i would say perhaps you know there are two dimensions to this one is the tennis aspect itself in terms of uh, all the new records he has set and the level at which he's been playing against really tough opponents and the other aspect is the tremendous mental strength which is involved uh, presumably in overcoming adversity time and time and time and again so which of these two would you rate as the more difficult achievement in his latest grand slam title triumph oh um wow where do i begin You know, I want to begin actually at the end, the moment when he had the trophy in his hand. I'm sure it's a gif that's been played a million times on social media. Like he had the trophy in his hand, he hugged it, he gave it a loving pat. You know, it was like he was reunited with a, a long lost friend, and it was also on one level like he was winning his first French Open and not his 14th. So there is something to be said, you know, about Nadal's single-minded. dogged motivation because how much does how much does winning mean when you've already won everything right so it also um, took me back to a conversation i had um, recently with uh, paul anacon who was a former tennis player but more famously known for um, coaching pete sampras in the second half of his career and then roger federer also for a bit so anacon has a theory on how tennis grades age he said you can't take away greatness you know it's not like you're not great all of a sudden but you lose the consistent will to do it day in and day out so i think this consistent will to push yourself um physically and mentally right from the practice court to the tournament court and being able to master this on master this will on a regular basis that's nadal's biggest achievement this year and it's what it's what has come to define him all of this year because let's face it this this year's probably the year that nadal has struggled the most he had covid in the beginning of 2020 he thought he wouldn't even play the australian open but he ended up winning it i mean was he satisfied with that no he had a streak of wins in the in the north american swing and then he had a bad um, okay bad by his standards obviously uh, a bad start to his usual clay season routine and here we are so nadal is a french open champion again i think it's just sheer will we've seen it like 
in how he plays every point like it's like it's championship point so this i think we can all agree that nadal is one of the most tenacious players to ever grace a tennis court and that tenacity is what has come out all of this year yeah yeah i mean it's interesting what you're saying about his tenacity and how he plays every point i mean i was just reminded i was listening to a podcast by one of these tennis podcasts and i think there is this croatian uh, a player i think jankovic he has a tennis academy as well and uh, uh, he was asked uh, but what do you see as a main difference between you know a top 10 and top 20 player and somebody who's been playing say in the top 50 and the top 60 for many years and he said that you know he made a very interesting point he said that the main difference there is no real difference in terms of the quality of play and their skill set the real difference is that in a, in the case of a top 10 or a top 20 player they play every point in the practice sessions that they have as if they were playing a match so if nadal we had to go and practice say in his home court the rafa nadal academy or wherever for say 2 hours he would be playing each point with absolute intensity as if it's a final of a Roland Garros, whatever. That is the level of intensity they bring to the practice matches. So you can imagine, you know, how he might be taking it up a couple of notches in a real game. And that I thought was very interesting. And you were talking about all twenty players being at this level, and then to be like a cut above them in terms of tenacity and intensity is really mind-boggling. And I suppose uh, that's one interesting aspect of Nadal's game. Definitely, yeah. and coming to his injury uh, condition priti we all know the whole world knows that he suffers from muller weiss syndrome which is a very painful foot condition there's no cure it's it's idiopathic can you talk a little bit about how he has managed this problem over the years i mean i understand he first they came to know about it when he was 18 years old now he's 35 36 so how has he managed it over the years and how was this year's french open very different because nobody spoke about his injury all these years when he's been winning the french open title but this year he is coming to it also with some other injuries he had a rib injury at indian wells and he's been taking apparently painkillers every 6 hours or so during the tournament so how was it this time yeah so um in a recent interview you know nadal said i'm not injured i'm a player living with an injury you know that i felt you know it spoke a lot about his his condition and we all know that he's had this this foot um issue since um 2005 when he was still a teenager and and it's like you said it's a it's a degenerative condition so we knew it was going to become a major factor be- before the end of his career and he also said you know he said the pain knocks the happiness um out of you which was you know a very sad insight i felt i felt very sad when i heard him say that because it it gave a very sad insight into the kind of life he lives and the and the sort of sacrifices he's had to make to you know to continue playing and he's had to deal with with back injuries wrist injuries and even even appendicitis that kept him away from the game i think a few years back um of course i don't i mean we don't know the minute details of how he has managed it um but he has admitted on several occasions that he has had to pop a lot of painkillers or take anti-inflammatory injections just to train i mean we're not talking about matches just to get on to to the practice court and that's what he did this year too and even in the beginning of the of the french open tournament he made sure he told everyone on court that uh, on the during the on court interview that you know i will tell tell you about what's happening with my my um condition at the end of the tournament and when he when he did say what he he said i think it was so explosive i think that sort of 
you know, uh, covered the the actual ring. He said he had a whole medical team on board, doctors with him, and received painkilling injections to numb his left foot before each of his matches in Paris. I mean, so he literally, it's like he won his his fourteenth French Open on on one foot. You know, that's that's utterly ridiculous. I'd say. I mean, he's also said that he would not do the same again. At any tournament, not even Wimbledon, because of the long-term risks involved, and now he is looking at other uh, treatment options. But he's also very accepting and understanding of the fact that you know uh, he is. This is what is his condition. He always downplays his chances at at any tournament. He's he's very realistic in in that sense. So I think that's also one way he's been dealing with because he's he's had. This all of his playing career, so I guess he knows how to deal with it better. Yeah. So this uh, his his revelations at the end of uh, the French Open about the kind of painkillers uh, treatment he's been receiving. Apparently, he would he would be given that injection twenty minutes before the match, and it would last about six to seven hours, and then he stopped taking it once the tournament got over, which is why he had to you know uh, use crutches to even walk. So, does, and, and and one of the points which came up around this debate was that it's not just Nadal. Maybe Nadal is an extreme case given his uh, special condition. But is it the case that from what you've heard and you've covered a couple of Grand Slams and you've been to other places, do all tennis athletes in the elite level, do they all have to manage with painkillers? Is the sport so demanding that uh, how common is this uh, in elite tennis? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, since... I mean, tennis is a very physically grinding sport. You're putting your body through a lot. Like, it's not like, you know, it's just you train for a few years. You train from when you're young, you're conditioning your body. So, taking pain medication before and after matches has become uh, the norm. In fact, I've read in a report, when Goran Ivanisevic has said, you know, taking anti-inflammatories was a necessary evil. He said... He was um, popping anti-inflammatories like candies. He said, I was smashing them, you know, when he won Wimbledon in um, uh, uh, 2001. I think that's one extreme. But there are players like um, like uh, like Andy Murray who are a bit more careful. I think he said he's taken them only now and then when he has problems with his back or hips. There's um, Joe Wilfred Songa who said, um, you know, I took, take it, but I try to uh, avoid it. I feel like I want to play with the injury so I know what exactly, I know the correct extent of it. But yeah, it's so it's so common that both the ATP and the WTA regularly distribute detailed information to players, warning them of the dangers of um, overuse. So yeah, it's it's very common. Right. And and uh, and you, you spoke about Murray and how he is very careful and, and I understand even Djokovic is apparently not very very much in favor of injecting stuff into his body, which is probably why he's not taking the vaccine even. So, uh, and this uh, having happened in France, uh, interestingly, a couple of cyclists, French cyclists have come out uh, with their points of view, arguing that uh, an athlete, a star athlete who has been competing with the aid of painkilling medications and injections and anti-inflammatories, is not really a good role model for youngsters, children, adolescents because their point of view is if you have such severe pain, you just don't play. Otherwise, you will just end up abusing your body. And I think uh, I can relate to this because I mean, from my own experience at a very, very basic level, I mean, I injured my wrist sometime back while playing tennis. And then 
I of course I stayed off the court. Then I ended up setting up a match with someone. I couldn't cancel, so I took a painkiller and then I played for two hours. And the end of it, I ended up with a ligament tear, which kept me out for about six months, and still on. You know, so there is no doubt that if you play with an injury using an anti-inflammatory and anti-pain medication, it will end up making it worse. So, do you think there is merit in this criticism by these uh, cyclists that if you have pain, you just don't play? You know, I I guess players will do whatever it takes to you know to get on the court and give themselves the best chance to win. Of course, they do. They need to make sure whatever they do is within the legal ambit. We are never going to know what sort of a painkiller, what composition it has, the painkiller that Nadal um, uh, took. But I think we can be you know um, certain to to a, to a, a degree that a painkiller is not a performance enhancer. So a painkiller is there to get you on court or to get you on court in a manner where you can you can or you feel you have a chance after you've had issue of some sort in the previous match or whatever, but it does not enhance your performance per se. So I think think you know the um, uh, the criticism about Nadal playing through pain. I don't think there's any merit in it because because no, simply for the reason that no one knows Nadal's body better than Nadal himself. If he decides he can't play, he won't play, which has happened before. He has retired in the middle of Grand Slam matches. In fact, he retired in in 2018, the US Open of 2018, which I covered. He retired in the semi-final against Juan Martin Del Potro. He he had come off um, a, a grueling five-setter against Dominic Thiem, and you know his his foot was injured, so he knew that he can't play. And it was a big stage. It was a a Grand Slam a Grand Slam semi-final. So. If he knows that he can't play, he won't play. And I'm guessing only if he's absolutely sure that he can play, even with this, he must have um, played. So I don't think there is any merit to that criticism, although I understand it, it's becoming a very delicate issue. Right. Of course, I mean, a champion would always uh, want to play if there is even a slight possibility that he can play and, you know, uh, take a calculated risk and get across the line. Now, you are someone who has followed, uh, I'm sure, Nadal's game over the years for a long time. Have you noticed any changes to his game as he has grown older, when his body is aging so much the worse for all the wear and tear? And I mean, I would imagine players would not be uh, playing the same game, which might be, you know, far more oriented towards uh, retrieving, for instance, as the case is with Nadal when he was much younger. So, what changes, if any, have you noticed in his uh, approach to the game, to the strategy, adoption, so on? Yeah, so I think I think all of us who who remember um, Nadal bursting onto the scene, I think we remember uh, his hair, and then we remember the, the rippling muscles, right, from his like his his uh, sleeveless um, uh, shirt. So I think at that time he was deemed a player with limited arsenal, I mean, stamina, and muscularity, physical strength were seen as his standout qualities. And when he moved to his 20s, I think he improved as a shot maker, slicing and volleying better. He managed to record five final appearances at Wimbledon, which was considered his his weaker spot from, I think, 2006 to 2011 and won two of them. And now, as he neared, after that, when he neared his 30s, and remember, this was immediately after his his, um, slump in uh, 2015-2016, he elevated his serve, I think, which I thought was a very, very important change that he made. 
and he added more aggression to his game like you said especially on the forehand side and um, i think we we all know what sort of a weapon um Federer's backhand is and um, Nadal's backhand which was once a liability i think has now improved leaps and bounds i think we would have we would have seen it even in the final against um Kasper Ruud at the French Open the recent French Open where i think he he used it so brilliantly and it helped him to stay ahead in um both sets and i also think a major turning point um was the nearly in the 6 hour long australian open final against djokovic in um, 2012 of course we all remember what sort of an epic game that was and at the end both players could you know barely stand during the presentation ceremony and i think that was really a wake up call for nadal because here was finally a man djokovic finally a man who could outrally nadal and nadal couldn't be the old um, nadal so djokovic would constantly pin nadal in his back backhand corner constantly probing that weakness so now when he when he improved his um, backhand i think he was able to play djokovic also better djokovic couldn't exploit that uh, weakness and the the 2020 french open final was the best um, example um, of that again of how he's improved that um, aspect it's very very smart what um, nadal has done because the modern day nadal he knows he knows what his shortcomings are his age he can't be as athletic as he used to be so the modern day nadal shortens points so his if his serve is good and he can hit that serve plus one shot as a forehand i think the point is pretty much his so it's like the success on on clay can be very deceptive and make people feel that he's very defensive but that's not the case in the last Five years, he's won um, two U.S. Opens, one Australian Open, reached two other finals, and got to two Wimbledon semis. I think without being adept at playing uh, quick and short points, which is what he has tried to do, this is not uh, possible. I think the the Nadal of today, more than the Nadal um, from when we saw him um, in his teens or in the twenties, the Nadal of today is probably the most complete. he has ever been in terms of his um style of playing i think if we if we remove the physical aspect of it his age and whatever comes with it he's still he's probably the most complete he has ever been right you so you you made some very interesting points here you said he has improved his backhand uh, and his forehand has gotten probably bigger than before and his serve has also probably gotten more precise and big and then you're saying he plays uh, shorter points as well and that i would imagine would make him even more of a threat on surfaces other than clay because those sort of carry more weight uh in play in in sort of surfaces where the points tend to be shorter than uh the slugfest which we see generally in clay courts so coming to uh the djokovic quarterfinals which was actually you know the de facto finals as it were in the eyes of many people who are watching what do you think was the key factor in his uh victory over djokovic because he lost to him in the last year last year's french open so what was uh, different that he tried to do this time or was it djokovic who was not up to his level i think just like last year you know watching the djokovic nadal pain was like a, a match was like a mixture of you know pain and pleasure so at one point you're like oh my god what 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 a match what a point and at another point you're like you just want to go there and you know wave a white flag in between them you just want them oh my god you guys you have to like stop playing like this but yeah like i said before um nadal had arrived in the quarter final with with some of his worst preparation right he had never in his 
in his 17 years of competing at the French Open, contested without reaching a single Masters um, thousand final during the clay season of that year. And um, of course, we all saw the, the match against um, uh, Felix Auger-Eliassime. Um, he won the match, but the way he lost those two sets, again, it was it was subpar by his his standards, by Nadal's usual standards. So it, I think it was all about raising his his level. And boy, he did that from the get-go. I think he, he set the tone from the beginning. He forced his way inside the baseline and gradually suffocated Djokovic. And, you know, the suffocating is usually, I mean, Djokovic does that. That's what he does to his um, opponents. So I think Nadal's forehand again, as you said, which is like, which is like the most glittering weapon in his arsenal was on full display. He was able to construct his points better, is what I thought. Because usually with Djokovic, he gives gives you no time to do that. You're constantly on uh, damage control mode. So Nadal was able to construct his points better. But again, um, Djokovic being Djokovic, he dug in and it seemed like the result would go away like like um, last year's match. But again, Djokovic couldn't maintain his his usual level. And I I also thought how Nadal ended the match was unbelievable. He had absolutely no business winning that fourth set, really. I don't think, I think all of us must have settled for um, the fifth set, right? Because Djokovic led 5-3 and we all thought, okay, if it's a fifth set, maybe Djokovic had more chances. And then, and then it was like Nadal got more um, uh, self-assured. It was like when the more Nadal, the more confident Nadal got, the the shakier Djokovic became. Again, Nadal raised his level exactly when needed, you know. And when he played that that fourth set tiebreaker, I really felt it was like he he channeled all of the best tennis he has played in that court over the years, because I don't think there was any other way he could have won that that fourth set. Right, you, you. I mean, that's of course. Uh, it seems a very uh, nice way of putting it. Channel all his best tennis over the years, and uh, that did seem to be the case. What do you think of uh, Djokovic's coach Ivanisevic's comment after the match that probably the crowd support uh, played a big role? You know, uh, in terms of he said ninety nine point nine percent of the crowd there were very partisan, and they were also uh, disrespectful to Djokovic, and that in terms of you know. Energy levels, confidence, your attitude, it did take away something. What are your comments on that? I think there's no other uh, player who's used to a partisan crowd like Djokovic, uh, right? He's played uh, Federer on several occasions. He's played Federer at Wimbledon and Federer was up championship point, right, in 2019. I don't think anyone can forget that match um, uh, very soon. Federer was up championship point and Wimbledon is again Federer's um, second home and the crowd is obviously rooting for Federer and for Djokovic to save championship point and then to come back and win that match. Of course, the stakes were much higher. It was a Wimbledon final. because This is a quarterfinal. I don't think there's a better player than Djokovic to manage, to, you know, to, to sort of shut down whatever the crowd is doing. So I think I think it was more um, Djokovic's own errors. I think he wasn't able to to find his his level. I don't think um, the crowd affected him that much. Of course, he's always seen as as a player who's yearning for uh, the affections of the crowd. But I don't think it it matters when he's on court. I think he's 
He's that mean mental machine who can shut it all out and just do what it what needs to be done to win the match. Right. Uh, coming back to Nadal and his uh, immediate future, what do you think uh, are your cha- are his chances of competing at Wimbledon next month? I mean, we've read some sporadic reports that uh, he's sort of trying to uh, go for a different kind of treatment for his foot. Uh, and uh, if that works, only then he'll probably play. Otherwise, he may not play. So, what do you think? Do you think is he likely to play? And if he does go ahead, uh, what would you rate his chances to be based on what we've seen of him this season so far? Yeah. So I was uh, I was very surprised. He said that he said I'm going to be at Wimbledon if my body is ready to be at Wimbledon. Nobody wants to miss Wimbledon. So that's what he said. So it seems like he really wants to compete, but. But obviously, he would wait for the results of his next um, treatment plan. And yeah, I was a little surprised he said that given what the extent of what he's had to do to play on a court, which is practically his home, the clay court. But And grass is a different beast altogether and, and one in which his, his problems are, are well known. I think he's, he's, had, he's always had um, difficulty finding his footing. And his his shot making is not is not always that great as compared to of course uh, clay. And I would not rate his chances high. But what do you know? I never imagined he'd win the Australian Open this year. So that's that. I think I think we're better off not making any predictions because he can he can definitely surprise us. Right, that he has done over and over again now over the years. Coming finally uh, to the inevitable question about the big three, the GOAT debate. Now, many are beginning to say that with his 22 titles and uh, against the odds, that too, and overcoming adversity, Nadal has finally settled the GOAT debate in his favor. And they also argue that Federer is now past 40, is unlikely to win any more Grand Slams. And with the likes of Carlos Alcaraz, you know, who are now coming up really fast and strong, it is unlikely that even Djokovic uh, would be able to overtake Nadal uh, anytime soon. What are your thoughts on this question and this debate? I think trying to um, figure out um, who is the greatest of all time is, is you know, is obviously a, a favorite fan pastime. But I also think it's it's a fool's errand. You simply cannot compare players from different eras, and and now you can't even compare players within the, the same era uh, to an extent. I mean. Sure, if you're considering a number of Grand Slam titles won as the only uh, quantifiable measure, Nadal has created a clear buffer between him and and the others. But Wimbledon is just around the corner. We don't know what's going to happen. So two years ago, we thought Djokovic would end up as the leader. I mean, he was number one in the world, and it was a time when um, Nadal was was you know starting to win starting to only win the French Open and we weren't even sure if he could win on hard courts as well. So it's definitely we, we're not sure what what awaits us in the in the uh, coming seasons. And some have even said, like you said, Carlos Alcaraz is poised to become the greatest because at nineteen, I think he's much more of a complete player than the big three were at that stage, which is again why why he's seen as such a big threat. But but will he become the greatest again? We never know. We just have to wait and watch. Right. Uh, we're running out of time, Preeti. Uh, so we'll wind up at this point. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and insights. 
on Nadal and the tennis season this year. And uh, it will be interesting to see what happens in Wimbledon. It's, of course, unfortunate that there won't be uh, ranking points on offer and there will also be no ranking points for 2021. So, the draw would be uh, very different from what one might expect in a conventional Wimbledon. There will be no Russian players. But still, it is, uh, as they say, the crown jewel of the tennis season. And hopefully, we'll come back and talk more tennis around the next Grand Slam season. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. In Focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues. In the meantime, you can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and other platforms. Just search for In Focus by The Hindu. We'll see you soon.